Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Boy, do we have a show for you this week, two of America's finest curators. First, Anne Umland. Along with Catherine Hugh, Umland is the curator of Francis Picabia. Our heads are round so our thoughts can change direction, Picabia's first American retrospective. It's on view at the Museum of Modern Art through March 19th. Umland and Hugh, a curator at the Kunsthaus Zurich, were assisted by MoMA's Talia Quartler. The exhibition catalog was published by MoMA. Amazon offers it for $49. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Picabia is both one of the most significant artists of the 20th century and one of the most slippery. From right around the turn of the century until his death in 1953, Picabia slipped from representative painting to cubism-informed abstraction to conceptual work informed by design to kitsch to filmmaking and more. Umland is a curator at MoMA, where her credits include Picasso Sculpture, Magritte, The Mystery of the Ordinary, 1926 to 1938, Picasso Guitars, 1912 to 1914, and Jo Miro, Painting and Anti-Painting, 1927 to 1937. She was previously on the show to discuss Magritte and Picasso. We'll have links to those on manpodcast.com as well. On the second segment, Los Angeles County Museum of Art curator Stephanie Barron returns to the program to discuss... John McLaughlin Paintings, Total Abstraction, the artist's first retrospective. McLaughlin was one of the most important artists of post-war America. At a time when most artists were looking to Europe, McLaughlin looked to centuries of Japanese art and created work informed by the void and also by an Emersonian understanding of nature. That shows on view through April 16th. The exhibition's outstanding catalog was published by Pristel. You can get it for $39 through Amazon. We'll have a link to that one as well. But first, Anne Umland after the break. The Pulitzer Arts Foundation exhibition Medardo Rosso, Experiments in Light and Form, is one of the most anticipated retrospectives of the season. I'm thrilled to announce that our next live audience taping of the Modern Art Notes podcast will be with the show's two curators, Sharon Hecker and Tamara H. Schenkenberg. Please join the three of us at the Pulitzer on Saturday, February 4th at 11 o'clock. Admission is free. Hope to see you there. Realist. Surrealist. Hippie. Punk. Icon. Bruce Connor. It's All True is on view now at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. Connor, a famous prankster and master of multimedia, was a visionary of San Francisco's art scene but could not be defined by any one movement. Experience over 250 works from this provocative artist's incredible output, including film, assemblages, paintings, photograms, and more. Get tickets at sfmoma.org. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents In Real Life, 100 Days of Film and Performance. Now through January, head to the Hammer to see four month-long film exhibitions, public rehearsals in the museum's courtyard, and 15 weekends of performances by artists including Trodgell Harrell, Dan Levinson, Mutant Salon, Jennifer Moon and Laub, Allison O'Daniel, Janine Olison, Laura Schnitger, Simon Lee, Simon Lung, and more. The four month-long film exhibitions include seven short films examining crisis and technology from Artists Film International, Echo, the videos of One Otrix, Point, Never, and related works, How to Love a Watermelon Woman, featuring the films of Cheryl Dunier, and The Workshop Years, Black British Film and Video after 1981. Find a schedule and details for In Real Life at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum. Free for good.
And we're back. Anne Umland, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. It's a pleasure to be here. A lot of the American critical reaction to your show has been that this is the right moment for Picabia, that, that artistic practice has moved, today's artistic practice has moved toward his here and there, often ironic, a little bit of everything approach to art making. But in truth, you know, I guess America is kind of late to Picabia in, in that there have been a number of European retrospectives in Paris and Zurich in the last 45 years, but nary one in the U.S. So what did Europe get about him over those years that we didn't? I mean, there certainly are more works in European collections, for starters. And I think perhaps there was not such a rigid orthodoxy of what counted for modern arts history there, just to wildly speculate and generalize. And that we just have reached a point in our 21st century moment that so much of the art that's been made now, and in fact, since Picabia's death, since the 1960s, make him look prescient over and over again. So you just get to a moment where there's a cumulative mass and feel as though the time has come in America to put it out there for our audiences. And I think in, in Europe, the first big, big retrospective after his death was held in 1976 at the Grand Palais, a show organized by Jean-Hubert Martin and a curator named Helen Sickel. And effectively, they did what we've done here, which is to show all the significant categories of works or periods or moments in Picabia in full. Whereas the 1970 show, the last American retrospective, first and last American retrospective, was held in 1970 at the Guggenheim Museum. And it was organized by the, to this day, leading Picabia scholar, a man named William Camfield. And speaking to Bill over the years as I've been working on this project, he has said over and again that the Guggenheim administration at that time didn't let him include some of the, or any, any of the figurative, kitschy pinup nudes of the 1940s, or those late, crusty, quasi-monochromatic abstractions for varied reasons. I, I, there, there wasn't anything in the correspondence or the archives that ever spelled out why, why they were censored. But you have to imagine a little bit about Clement Greenberg's modernism having a strong a strong hold on what was in and what was not, and that Picabia is a different type of artistic model. And I, yeah, it's it's an interesting, big, broad question. You know, he's anti-heroic as opposed to heroic, and maybe we just weren't ready on these shores for that. Well, then let's jump into into your show, the opening of the exhibition at MoMA mostly, but not entirely, presents Picabia as, as something of a belated Impressionist, or at least with belated, his, his kind of early 20th century Impressionist paintings. But you also could have opened, if you'd wanted to, with Picabia the Divisionist, or as the painter of Cubism-informed, but not quite Cubist still lifes. Why, why did you choose to start with Impressionism? Very literally, because that was Picabia's own first start. That was his first success as an artist. I think 
a number of Europeans of his generation and probably Americans as well began with Impressionism and then sort of rapidly dropped that and moved on to try out a succession of styles before they found their own voice. But Bacabi is different in the sense that he had a very successful three-year career as this artist who painted, after the fact, Impressionist landscapes, many of which, as some of the works included in the show demonstrate, looked like a Claude Monet or like an Alfred Sisley. And I think we wanted to honor that. He had catalogs written, he had works sold, he had major exhibitions in key galleries. So there was something sustained about that part of his practice. And it also allowed us with hindsight, there has been a, there is a scholar in France named Arnaud Pierre, who's written a book called La Peinture Sans Aura, which is one of the most important rereadings of Pacavia that's been published again in the 21st century, who takes a very meticulous look at Pacavia's source material and went back and found postcard reproductions and photographs of those Impressionist landscapes that Pacavia worked from. And so it was interesting for me and, and for my colleague in Zurich, Catherine Hoog, to think about setting Pacavia up both as an early success, right, an art artist who, who, who kind of made it only to give it up, and as someone who worked from photographic reproductions. And that engagement with photography and with mechanical reproduction and with the appropriation of imagery does become a through line in a career that otherwise might look wildly heterogeneous or diverse in stylistic terms. And I think the only other thing to say about those early Impressionist works is that I also wanted to include a very large one, which I thought about for a long time because a big decision to make to have such a big, big Impressionist not to be mixed, missed image at the beginning of the show. And I did it as a sign of his ambition. It was also an award-winning painting. And it was a picture that was included in one of the early conservative salons in France. And the use of the salon system became an important part of Picabia's more interventionist practices during the Dada years. He gained membership to these conservative institutions and they couldn't refuse him the right to display even once he stopped creating works that fit the norm or conventions of the, of the things that you usually would see there. That very large painting is Pine Trees, Effective Sunlight at, at Saint Honorat in uh, 1906. The, we'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. Those three Impressionist years you referenced are 1906 to 1909. That brings us to the nearly abstract cubism-formed paintings of, of 1912, kind of the first really mature paintings Picabia made, kind of where he begins to pivot into to who we now know him as. When he chooses to make that pivot away from kind of retrograde painting to something more engaged with what was going on at, at that current time, why why does he focus on the body? 
Well, the body is definitely another one of those constants for the cavea. And I suppose in a certain sense, it's one of the great subjects of art. French art in particular. And, and we should note that Picabia was Spanish and, and, of course, was in France. So is he engaging with the French tradition? I, I think he's both. I mean, what I always love about Picabia is he has a French passport. He's a French citizen. His mother is a good French bourgeois. His father, as you notice, Spanish, born Cuba. But I think Picabia like to play up the more exotic aspects of being a Spaniard in France, when in fact he's really a, bo- a both. I think in the wall text, in the intro wall text for the show, in fact, we have a quote where he says, you know, I was born of a French mother and a Spanish father, but at times I have the impression of being French and Spanish and American and Italian and everything all at once. So why am I on that thread? Just because he's he both is Spanish and yet he's deeply connected to France and the two, those two sides of his personality, I think, are, are equally important for looking at and understanding the traditions he comes out of. Pretty much all of these 1912 pictures are, are abstractions away from the body. They, you know, one of them, in fact, the one in the uh, Philly Museum collection, Dances at the Spring, is, is kind of a little bit Manny or Dawson to, to today's eyes. Some of the others are a little more Leger-like. I want to focus on Sad Figure from 1912. It's at the Albright. It's a color that is not really common to Picabia's palette at this point, or really any other point in his career. Why is he painting a blue figure? Well, I've always wondered if part of it, he's painting figure triste around the same time that he does the Philly painting. So he's doing rose and blue, period, so to speak. There are blues in his New York, some of the New York works on paper. So it's not a color that he that he didn't, you know, that he never, never used. But different, different blues, though. This yeah, is a, this is a, yeah, definitely a different. Yeah. Blue. So I don't know. I mean, as I said, with the blue and rose period and those two paintings simultaneously and back to the Picasso question, it made me wonder if there was something of that in the back of his mind or not. That's a very MoMA curator answer because I would I would I would offer that it's a riff on Matisse. On Matisse <laughs> Well <laughs> I, or I, you know, this I don't MoMA think curator. You, can... you know, perhaps Jody Hauptman would have instantly said, Ah, Matisse blue nude you know, I have dabbled more on the Picasso side of things, so admittedly that tends to be a point of reference. There, there are two things here that, that jumped out at me. One that I would not have known without reading the catalog, and that is in these paintings of the figure in 1912, Picabia apparently worked on them sideways on an easel. He would turn them 90 degrees and work on them. And once I saw that in the catalog, I realized that the two feet in, in Sad Figure in 1912, the painting at the Albright, we'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. The two feet are in the same position as the two feet in Matisse's Blue Nude. Oh my goodness, um, that's interesting, was... Tyler, because I almost want to open my catalog because I could have sworn that there weren't feet in that. I have always looked at it as a, a seated figure. Yeah, and the legs are sort of, but not really crossed. And I, I read the two white-ish, you know, things just to the left of the bottom as as feet. 
and then and then you can kind of read if you're you know if, if like me you see matisse in every cloud in the sky you can kind of see the upraised foreleg and and calf of of blue nude then emerging from the center of the painting coming down i mean it's part of my usual thing that you know matisse's 1907 blue nude was the thunderbolt that started everything in the in the 20th century after after le bonheur de vivre of course and that today we tend to have forgotten that in part because blue nudes in baltimore but but Blue Nude is the painting that toured the continent, not, not Les Demoiselles. So. What I've been struck by, and I think this was just the serendipity of, of the hang, is how this figure has that white dot sort of in the upper center of the canvas. And that that circle motif then goes on to be something that Picabia plays with and plays with and plays with. If you turn the painting on its side... The, the Picabia on its side. It's about exactly where the primary breast, if you will, is in Blue Nude. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. I could, I could go on on this forever. The, the the last little reference that I would read into into Matisse in this painting is the hairstyle of of the seated figure, which which while it was, I understand from from the literature, a not uncommon hairstyle of the time within the context of French art of the period, everybody would have recognized it as Amelie Matisse's do from the famous folk portraits. So I am sure that Picabia was an avid looker at everything. And there are some works of his that are more fauve than not. So fair enough to insert Matisse into his roster of references. Moving along in Picabia's career, his his best known in America work, I think, and and you know maybe not, but to me anyway, is probably the sort of mechanical painting and drawing he did starting around 1913 or 1914, and they kind of it's a series that kicks off with a with a number of watercolors from 13 that suggest Picabia is moving on from deconstructing the figure to deconstructing landscapes. In fact, I think he even references New York City in one of his titles. And then in 1914, he moves from deconstructing landscapes or things or, you know, something tangible to constructing fantastical machine-like forms. This seems to be before the war. Why why this sudden rapid movement through construction and deconstruction of things he hasn't been engaged with in a number of years? Well, of course, he's in New York in 1913 for the first time since he's the only member of the European avant-garde featured in the Armory show who could afford to cross the ocean to be there. And he's on record as having been very impressed at the time by America's machines and feats of engineering and the skyscrapers and the landscapes and all of that. So in one sense, you could say or you could posit you could follow his lead, his, you know, the interviews he gave at the time sort of set the stage for you of thinking that he's responding to this new environment. He also, during those years, meets Alfred Stieglitz, the great American photographer and avant-garde impresario and gallerist at the time, who promises Picabia a one-person show. And that's when Picabia, in fact, begins to make those watercolors, the number of which have New York in the title. 
He made them in his hotel room down in Greenwich Village. And Stieglitz opened an exhibition of them right after the Armory show closed. This is sort of a double billing for Francis Bacabia on American shores. I think he knows Marcel Duchamp by that point, and he meets Man Ray, and so there are a confluence of interests of artists who are thinking about mechanical things in relation to images for art. So it's probably no one thing, but that constellation. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you brought up Duchamp because in 1913 he makes his his famed painting Chocolate Grinder, now known I guess as Chocolate Grinder Number One, that's in Philadelphia. How much do we know about how much Duchamp and Picabia were in touch in this period? Whether Duchamp is looking at Picabia breaking down mechanical forms or whether it's the other way around? I think it's both ways. And I think there was a wonderful show that a curator named Jennifer Mundy did at the Tate. I'm trying to remember. I don't remember exactly what year, but it looked in. It looked at Man Ray, Duchamp, and Picabia, and so that is the best source to go to for someone who's really lined up the the biographies of those three and tried to look at moments of intersection. There was another show recently in Paris at the Centre Pompidou that looked at early Duchamp and Duchamp as a, as a painter. And that also brought Bacabia and him into relationship. I think that there is still a great exhibition to be done that would look just at Bacabia and Duchamp, because I think that that pair, just as Picasso and Brock were to Cubism, you could think of Bacabia and Duchamp to so much of what we now call Dada and a very particular sort of mechanical mechanical orientation right, or conceptual orientation to the act of art making or cultural production. And, you know, I loved back in 1989, just to date myself when William Rubin here did that Picasso and Brock pioneering cubism show that sort of meticulously mapped the dialogue between the two artists. I thought that was one of the most moving exhibitions I'd ever seen. And Duchamp did remain Picabia's lifelong friend. And the two talked a lot and they clearly in those early years, I, I, I just back to your original question, which way did it go? I think it was reciprocal, reciprocal interests and complicity just in the way that Picasso and Brock were. There are two terrific essays in the catalog that get at this combination of Duchamp and Picabia and the two of them in New York, um, George Baker's essay um, and Adrian Sidalter's essay. You know, this this conjunction of, of artist and, and place raises the question, and it seems to pop up again and again throughout the show, is Picabia always sensitive to his physical geography he's he's wealthy he flies around a lot is he always feeding off of place or is it not always as important to him as new york was i think he feeds off of barcelona i think the south of france he his work changes when he moves down there to a town he shares with pablo picasso yeah i think when he goes back to Paris after the war, the work shifts again. And certainly 
many parallels can be drawn between his post-World War II abstractions and what artists like Fautrier or Dubuffet or Bowles or the whole art informel movement was was exploring at that time, post-45. So, right, it's place, it's the people in those places, it's what happens there. But I, I think place does affect him and movement affects him. And I, I particularly love Adrian Sudhalter's essay in the catalog for the point it makes that what's constant during Picabia's war war years is the production of this journal, his journal 391 that he produces in Barcelona and in New York and in Zurich and in Paris. And that that is another type of a, a constant and that so much of the machine imagery in his work that perhaps today is better known through various iconic paintings of his is simultaneous to his working physically with the process of mechanical reproduction in these in these journals and that those journals are a constant beat no matter where no matter where he is so that that sort of goes against the place has has meaning or impacts the, the, the production. At the same time, the covers of those journals look distinctly different depending on whether they were made in Barcelona or New York or in Zurich or in Paris. So it goes both ways. There are a lot of the journals and material related to the journals in the show. It's one of the great, great parts of the show. We are, without saying it explicitly, dancing around the Dada World War One years. Does Picabia make anything, do anything in those years that you would consider or describe as, as notably or explicitly anti-war? I mean, he's certainly in statements and his, his written, spoken statements to the press or in his own periodicals are anti-nationalistic, anti cultural conventions, anti-societal norms, and in the sense that those types of ideologies, right, church, state, military, all contributed to the outbreak of, of World War One. So I don't know that you'd find him holding a placard up that says, you know, war is bad, but his, his actions and his statements are against everything that was, was complicit in that first horrible world conflagration. Could his fluidity of styles in media and his refusal to settle down anywhere in any particular style artistically be a reflection of that? Well, I, I believe that personally, that one way to understand what might at first glance come across as a bewildering complexity or plurality or shifts in direction does have a lot to do with the fact that he lived through the devastation of not just one world war, but two. And he fiercely resisted fixed positions in that sense, because you could see where totalitarian ideologies and hyperbolic nationalist rhetoric could could lead. And he was having none of that. So 
to me, the career as a whole can be viewed in that way as a, a resistance, a fixity that has a, a, a political dimension to it. Whether Picabia would have ever explicitly said that or not, for me, I think it's a, it's a you can't ignore it. My guest is Ann Umland. We'll be right back after a break. Suspended Animation, an exhibition of six emerging artists working with digital animation, is currently on view at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. By turns eerie, absurd, and entrancing, installations by Ed Atkins, Antoine Catala, Ian Chang, Josh Klein, Helen Martin, and Agnieszka Polska confront us with unsettling visions of our digital selves. Get more information at hirshhorn.si.edu and find out who lives in the Uncanny Valley. The history of the civil rights movement is commonly illustrated with well-known photographs from Birmingham, Montgomery, and Selma, leaving the visual story of the movement outside the South remaining to be told. In North of Dixie, Civil Rights Photography Beyond the South, a new book from Getty Publications, historian Mark Speltz shines light on images of everyday activists who fought campaigns against segregation, police brutality, and job discrimination in Chicago, Detroit, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, and many other cities. Visit shop.getty.edu to learn more. And now back to my conversation with Ann Umland. Armistice comes at the end of 1918. Picabia returns to Paris in the spring of 1919. Over the next few years, he he does even more of everything than he had done previously. There's there's all kinds of different media. There's figuration. There's abstraction. You know, I guess because World War One is the biggest thing in Europe between eighteen, you know, the end of the of the Franco-Prussian War in '71 and the rise of Hitler in the '30s, there's a temptation to look at 1919 and to try to find something that holds together what an artist, any artist starts doing at about that time and and does for the next few years. I mean, certainly we do it with Matisse and Picasso. Should I try to, or should we try to think about Picabia that way? Or is that just impossible? (laughs) Well, 1919, so he's back in Paris and he's soon joined by Tristan Zara. So I think you can hold on to the Paris Dada season, right? In the way is that's what changes. The thing is that it takes, as you said at the beginning, so, so many different forms with Bacabia, but all of them are these sort of vitriolic, right? Questioning of art, of conventions, of beliefs in, in value. That's when so many of the works that seem to foreshadow conceptual art, word art, the big picture that we put on the cover of the catalog, which is, you know, essentially inviting the copy, inviting all of his friends to write on the canvas. And that makes this new sort of group portrait or the idea that a splash of ink titled could be a picture or taking apart the and calling attention to the things that the art market uses to ascribe value, like an artist's signature, Picabia writes his name out and then he signs the signature so there's this meta commentary right on the 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 norms the conventions the things that we hold dear and a deflating 
of them that's constantly going on from 1919 on. And in a way that I would say is is different from the more iconic, glimmering, iconic, centralized images of, of machines in both the periodicals and the works on the wall. So there's a new type of iconoclasm, I think, at work from 1919 on in Macabia, and particularly during those early two years of the of the Dada season in Paris. One of the things Picabia begins doing in these years, in the early nineteen, early to mid nineteen twenties, is playing with film. What is what is Entracte, and why did Picabia, Eric Satie, and Rene Claire do it? Yeah, who know? I mean, such a great project, isn't it? One of the reviewers of the show sort of ended his piece with Entracte, which means intermission. And the film is 20 minutes long. And the film is 20 minutes long, depending on the frame per second speed at which you play it. And we worked the the scholar who wrote about the performance, because Entreact, the film, was but one part of a ballet production that Eric Satie invited Francis Picabia to collaborate on in January of 1924. And so almost from the very start, Picabia had the idea that a film should be part of this unconventional ballet. But he also, for the ballet, designed, he wrote the scenario, he wrote the scenario for the film, he wrote the scenario for the ballet, he designed the sets, and he designed the costumes. And the film was projected I think it's for 90 seconds at the beginning before the curtain goes up. Then there are the first few acts of the ballet. Then the intermission comes and you see the rest of the film. And there is a scenario written on stationery from Maxime's restaurant, you know, a fancy restaurant in Paris. So Picabia wrote this disjointed scenario for the action of the film out on that. And if you sat through it, portion that was played right at the beginning when the elegantly attired audience came in to take their seats in the Théâtre des Champs-Élysées. So the first scene that they would have viewed in the film was of Picabia and Eric Satie rolling a cannon around on a rooftop in Paris. And then they jump up and down using conventional, by then point, film tricks of slow action. So it makes them look like when they jump, they stay aloft for much longer than you or I would in real time and slowly level the cannon out so that it aims right at us, at the at the audience. And then, of course, the, I don't know, what do you call it? The mouth? It's not the mouth of the cannon. The, anyway, the, the aperture. The aperture, you becomes just one of Picabia's flat concentric circle target shape. And then the ammunition, the missile shoots right out at the audience and the entire production, in fact, continued in that type of very direct and at times aggressive address to the, to the audience in the seats. And it just must have been incredible to be there with these dancers who performed a striptease on stage and who began the production dressed in evening clothes. So 
in a sense, dressed as the members of the audience. And then they proceeded up on stage and slowly they took these outer garments off and underneath they had leotards with mirrors and more polka dots and reflector lights up on the stage. So it must have been just when you talk about taking down the fourth wall in theater, this is really one of the very, very early examples of that. But anyway, so so the, the ballet was panned by the critics, but Entreact, the film, went on to have a real life of its own. And today it's recognized by, by film historians as one of the great avant-garde classics of the 1920s. Filmed by Renee Claire, scenario by Francis Picabia, and with cameo appearances by Picabia himself and Eric Satie and Man Ray and Marcel Duchamp. So, and filled with formal devices like superimposition and montage and the overlaying of transparent negatives one over the other that go on to appear in different ways in Picabia's work. So it's interesting in that sense, that sense too. And another of our catalog authors, the artist Jean-Jacques Lebel, that makes an argument in his essay that entreact is the key to both what came before and what came after in Picabia's work. Yeah, I mean, really the only thing that's in Honoracta that isn't in Picabia's later work that I can think of as much as, you know, people popping out of coffins. <laughs> and then, but then going back into them again. And then going back, yeah. <laughs> Just to fill in one historical tidbit for, for listeners. So the film's made in 1924. So everybody who was in that audience knew that the Germans had shelled those very rooftops eight years earlier, which would have been a context for a contemporary audience that, that might be easily forgotten today among the great bits of, of art, World War I trivia. Max Ernst, who made work in Paris before World War I, was drafted into the German army and shelled his own his old neighborhood. Picabia. In 1923, Picabia, like so many formerly Parisian artists of, of his generation, moves to the south of France. Where does he go? Who is his neighbor, to whom we referred a moment ago? And does Picabia hate love his neighbor, as Aurélie Verdier writes in her catalog? Oh, goodness. Yes. Let's see. So, well, so in tw it's in 25, in fact, that he makes his move permanently to the south of France. And he moves to Cannes. And yes, Picasso, Pablo Picasso vacations there. I don't think that he has a residence until later in the 30s, a permanent, a permanent home. They do see each other. I think, I think that Picasso pays attention to Picabia and Picabia pays attention to Picasso. I am not sure about the love hate argument. I think the whole Freudian reading is one is one approach to the to the subject matter. I, I can say that I do believe, trivial or silly as it sounds, that having the first four letters of your name be the same was something that Picabia would have paid attention to. And I even came across at one point in the research for the show, there was a review. The headline was new, ooh, excuse me, new paintings by Picasso shown in New York. And then when you read 
the review, it's all about, it describes Bacabia paintings. So you just have to think that that's something, or just like I uh, swap them back and forth, you say one or the other, that that would have happened during his lifetime. And certainly for... There's certainly a lot of Picasso in that part of the show. The, the, the confetti in, say, Mardi Gras, which harkens back to Picasso's use of confetti in, in Cubist paintings from the early 1910s, the way Picabia paints eyes and paints people's two eyes differently in the way that Picasso would. I mean, there's certainly a few. Yes, nods. no, I think he's nodding, he's engaging, and then he's one-upping. There, His works are so, from that moment, the ones called the, the monsters painted in commercial enamel are so garish or decorative or mask like you Picasso's I always feel as though he's demonstrating his mastery over the subject he can paint eyes in different directions or things that don't add up Bacabia it feels like something different um it's a different type of deformation it's a different type of grotesquerie or three eyes in a row almost looks like when a film sputters or stutters a little bit and there's a play with the de decorative, I think, in Picabia with repeating motifs that, that I don't ever see played out so explicitly in Picasso's work. And I think, yeah, it's interesting. You know, we know here, too, that Picabia is looking at picture postcards and making these cliched, in some senses, images of clenching, kissing lovers but that are so at the opposite end of something uh, sentimental or sweet. I find it quite engaging. And that, yeah, the whole way that you know that Picabia is also embracing life in the south of France, or at least talking about it in a way that I, I don't believe Picasso ever did. Picabia likes to yacht and he likes to casino gamble and he's organizing Another part of his artistic practice at the time is organizing these huge thematic parties. So he's both a part of this French Riviera society that some have described as superficial or engaged with appearances, and he's observing it at the same time. And I think that adds something different to the to the valence of, the, of those pictures from what you see in Picasso. They seem to be mostly about Picasso, but I confess I can find Matisse in a few of them. There's one, The Lovers After the Rain, where the male figure is painted bearded and with a green stripe for a nose. And and that's got to be Matisse. Right back, but then where does that salmon pink come in? That's, I don't, that's... Well, but that's not, that's not, that's not the yeah, man. No, that's not the that's man. That's the woman. Yeah, that's the woman's arm. I'm sorry. We'll have an image of that on, on, on the website. Right. So that's one of the pictures, too, that we know, thanks to forensic imaging, that Picabia painted right on top of a 1913 abstraction. And I think when you look at it close up, it has such a great surface to it. You know, he really lets the fact that it's on tight, he lets the paint build up. You have such a sense that there are things that you can't see that are lurking just beneath. And the way that the commercial enamel dries in these wrinkly, puddly rivulets is something that Picabia seems to, I should I say, does he delight in it? 
he certainly leaves it there for us to see. That's also the perfect transition to Picabia's Transparencies, the series he, he begins, I guess, 27, 28, late, late 1920s. Do you read those as being about film, or could they also be about the way some painters tend to show their work and to build surfaces out of a series of surfaces? I could, again, reference Matisse here, but no. Mm -hmm. No, I think you could definitely reference Matisse. You could also reference cave painting. I think it's interesting with those works. I like how they connect both the things that are very modern, like, as you said, film or photo photo montage because those are really in terms of avant-garde production where you see that device of of superimposition and overlay played out and i think bacabi is the first artist i can think of who so di- directly takes that type of a tech uh, a technique with intact legible contour images layered one on top of the other as opposed to a sort of palimpsest where you get a sense of different ages and erasures and things like that happening. But, you know, the images, some art historians have just had a field day figuring out what all his sources are for the imagery in the transparencies, which range from Renaissance paintings by Botticelli and Piero della Francesca to photographs of nudes that appeared in magazines of the late 20s. So there's, yeah, there's a play with with time, things long ago and things very present. There's the time involved in layering the images. And of course, Picabia was great friends with Man Ray, who, as you mentioned, was doing... And he had made his own movie filled with superimposition. So I think it was a... I love that you never, the more time I spend with those transparencies, the less legible they become. I kind of like that they suggest you're going to see it all. And then you realize in the end, it's just impossible to to pull the different layers apart in some way. I think I like the early, I like the early group of works on paper in that gallery where you can see figurative Spanish types peering out from beneath a welter of these Catalan Romanesque motifs. And that's something some art historians have brought up to the Picabia visited Barcelona in the uh, late 20s and that he would have seen some of the great Catalan Romanesque frescoes being being restored. And of course, that's another time where you see different layers and accretions of time and imagery built up on a single surface. In the 1930s, Picabia makes a number of paintings that are that were made to intentionally reveal their own decomposition, if you will. I don't know, degeneration might be a better word than than decomposition. We talked a little bit earlier about Picabia's tendency to emphasize the Spanish part of his background. Is he making these paintings as a way of referencing the increasingly disastrous political situation in Spain? I do not know if I would go so far as to trace cause and effect. I think the word and maybe it's a dodge that I've liked using is symptomatic. You you know, you know what's going on in Spain and you know what is going on in Europe in the late 30s and it is a troubling time and it is difficult to see those pictures by Picabia separate from that moment. And certainly the one painting that 
directly addresses Spain is the work titled The Spanish Revolution that has that sort of tourist poster, pretty Spanish lady in a mantilla standing in the center, flanked by those two macabre skeletons. And Bacabia said, I can't remember whether it was, if it's reported in one of the books about him that Gabrielle Buffet wrote or Germaine Everling, but he said it was his response to the Spanish Civil War, like Picasso's Guernica, but whereas you know exactly where Picasso stands, it's a Guernica is this monumental anti-fascist protest painting. And I find it very difficult to parse any such clear message from Picabia's Spanish revolution. I don't know whether he's condemning or celebrating or making a joke all at the same time. Just a few years, maybe half a decade later, in the early 1940s, Picabia begins his kitsch paintings. They, they, they are kitschy. There's no other way. I mean, they're kitsch. More here than in any other thing he does in his career, there is a question of whether we like them or not and whether that response to them determines how willing we are to engage with them. Do you like them? And how, how do you access and work your way through them? Yeah, I have to say I do like them. I think I would have found it very hard to put them in the show if I didn't. I think I had a conversation a while back. I was talking to the artist Carol Dunham and said something about, well, you never know with Bacabia whether he's sincere or not. And Carol Dunham, to paraphrase, he sort of said, well, I think that's beside the point. You know, Picabi is always being true to himself. And so to circle back to those paintings, I do feel like they're true to him at a particular moment. And I think I come to them, first of all, conceptually, Picabia has specialized from almost day one, post, post those Impressionist pictures, in affronting the taste, affronting tastes. And these continue... I'll put the word Dada in front of it, sort of the Dada is all out assault on what is taste, what is beauty, what is good art, what is bad, what is high, what is low, what is kitsch, what is what is not. So they they push all those buttons that he's kind of been pushing for a, for a, a long time, just in a different way. I think for me too, I like work that argues for a larger understanding of what modern can be. And so I, I like that they put figuration right up in there at the same time. As you know, he can make gorgeous abstract paintings or he can make machine paintings or he can make transparencies. It just argues for figurative art compellingly made being a, pot, a part of modern art's history. So back to that whole body thing that we talked about at the beginning. I suppose retrospectively, now that we know, thanks to the diligent efforts of an art historian named Sarah Cochran, that many of the paintings from the early 40s, the so-called pinups, the kitsch painting, have photographic sources. And we've certainly seen Picabia 
using found imagery also from virtually the start. So they, so they continue, right? They continue and they continue to provoke questions of taste. They use source material in a new way. They add another layer, another layer, another way of thinking about what modern art could be. And I think in the end, they have, to me, they have interesting surfaces. And I'm not quite sure how to parse the surface. Someone said to me, they are the most unsensual, you know, they're they're the most unsensual pictures of sensuality they've ever seen. And I thought, huh, that's really a great insight. And I've I still haven't quite figured out how he how he does that, how he's always making pictures that are once removed. But I really did like them. And I really do think that whatever he's doing, it's true to him right then. And I think within the career as a whole, they're just fascinating because they yeah, they do seem like such an about about face. And yet you you can connect them right back to the start. We've been talking about um, how Picabia now, near the end of his career, is often referencing moves he made earlier in his career. And so let's end up there with the paintings he made in the late 1940s, these kind of often, mono, but not always, monochromatic backgrounds with dots, large polka dots. They're, they are they look almost borrowed from Picabia's 1911 Adam and Eve, in which the divisionist apple tree behind Adam and Eve has five fruit, fruit hanging on it, on it amidst its leaves, and they're just polka dots on these, on this plain green background. Are these just simple, straightforward abstractions in the late 1940s, or is he, or or are they summations? I mean, he knows he is nearing the end. Can they be both? I I don't know if a summation that doesn't. I can't imagine Picabia thinking of concluding statements somehow. But I do think those pictures circle back, right? Our heads around so our thoughts can change direction or so you can circle. I think they do circle back to to his early abstractions and even as you say to that tree behind Adam and Eve. So you know it's hard to reduce much more from the kitsch in the you know in forty two forty three to these these polka dotted monochromes. I mean it's a it's a long path, but he gets he there does, pretty fast, right? I I think we quote in the wall text. He in nineteen forty five he grants an interview to someone and promptly declares figuration is dead, and he is on to other things. It's interesting to me that it's in those same post-war years that he rediscovers, rolled up in his uh, studio, those two huge abstractions from 1913, Udni and Edta Onizel, that are at the beginning of the show, that he then works on restoring and that go on view in 1948 at the Jeu de Pommes. So he's simultaneously in Paris making abstractions and getting ready to have a show of his crusty dots and showing these two monumental works that really establish him as a a precursor of the turn to abstraction in post-war Europe right after World World War II. And those dots are a selection of a group of some 
50 paintings that he presented at a little gallery in France in 49. So we wanted to have a, a substantive group of them just to get at the sense of proliferation and almost, right, they're not quite monochromes, but they are close to it. And as you say, they are as reductive as Bacabia ever gets. I like, too, that a number of them he used quotes from Friedrich Nietzsche in their titles. And I do think that he always leaves you questioning whether it's valid or not about whether he's serious or not about something or can you really believe in anything or how, you know, the whole nihilist art, I think, holds water with, with Bacabi and the way we react to the work. At the same time, I have to say, in hanging that wall of dots, I just was, they're also, the, I find them really beautiful and that the, the, I was, I, I was surprised. I was surprised to find that latent beauty in them because they're also those, as you've seen in, in person, they're very crusty. They're clearly pictures painted on top of other pictures. He's sort of letting us purposely see a substrata again, like in the Lovers After a Rain. Some of them you can discern traces of other other compositions just in, in the monochrome color fields. It's a great last room, and uh, and it's a terrific show. And Anne Umland, thanks so much. Oh, for you are about welcome, Tyler. Thank you for inviting me to do so. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Dimensions of Black, a collaboration with the San Diego African American Museum of Fine Art at its downtown location through April 30th. Drawn from the museum's holdings. This exhibition of more than 30 works by African-American artists from the 1960s to today traverses crucial interests and perspectives that have shaped the art of our time. The collaboration presents a series of accompanying programs throughout the exhibition. For more information, visit mcasd.org. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Cause, Where the End Starts, a major survey exhibition of the work of the Brooklyn-based artist, organized by modern curator Andrea Carnes, in close collaboration with the artist. Featuring key paintings, sculptures, drawings, toys, and street art interventions, this exhibition examines Cause's prolific career in depth, revealing critical aspects of his formal, conceptual, and collaborative developments over the last 20 years. On view in Fort Worth through January 22nd. Also, Focus, Lorna Simpson, opening at the Modern on November 19th. Welcome back. My next guest is old friend Stephanie Barron, a curator at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. She's the curator of John McLaughlin Paintings, Total Abstraction. Amazingly enough, it's the artist's first retrospective. The show's on view through April 16th. Barron has previously been on the program to discuss exhibitions of Marsden Hartley, Modern German Art, and Ken Price. Stephanie Barron, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Nice to be here. As you and, and really kind of every author in the catalog note, artists have loved John McLaughlin for, for many decades now. And in the 1960s, he earned a lot more critical and curatorial attention than people seem to remember now. So how in the interceding decades between like the mid-70s and now, have historians and especially museums kind of missed him? 
Well, I mean, I think in essence, your question is what happened after he died? He died in 1976. And, you know, for me, it's actually an interesting anniversary, if you will, because I arrived at LACMA in January of 1976. So I never met McLaughlin. I stumbled on one of his paintings actually in our galleries, and I was really blown away. And then two months later, three months later, I read his obituary in the LA Times and began to hear about him more and more from from artists. But I didn't encounter his work much in other museums outside of Southern California and any shows having to do with abstraction, where he might have been included, he seemed to be absent. And I think the way I've kind of come to realize how the history kind of happened is it was a kind of confluence of timing that he had been getting a fair amount of critical reception in the 60s and even in the early 70s. He had a number of gallery shows both in L.A. and also with Andre Emmerich in New York. But it seemed to not translate into a lot of attention in the marketplace among other than a small handful of collectors. And I think it's a combination, if we look at it over the intervening 40 years, there's no opportunity in the marketplace to rediscover John McLaughlin with a unsold you know, treasure trove of canvases that are sitting in a warehouse. There's no estate, per se. Unfortunately, when McLaughlin died, he left his works to his widow, to his wife, Florence. She died not so long afterwards, and she left, in essence, the estate to his former dealer, Nick Wilder, who had subsequently moved to New York and become a painter. And then Nick died shortly after and left it to his partner. His partner died and left it to his brother. And many works had to be sold to satisfy estate taxes. So there's no warehouse, you know, that that some enterprising dealer can suddenly start to resurrect and represent or reposition a remarkable trove of work. And I think that's partly a good part of why there hasn't been a resurgence of interest in McLaughlin. There's a paragraph or two in the catalog, I think it's in your essay, that that lays out that history. And when I read it for the first time, it was just like watching leaves fall off of a tree little by little until there was nothing on the tree. You know, he's kind of our Hilma F. Clint. Yeah, I mean, except Hilma F. Clint never wanted to show in her lifetime. That's true, that's true. So, I mean... Because we actually showed him off Klim for the very first time in the United States in the spiritual and art show. So we we were we dealt with with that. But no, McLaughlin, you know, certainly enjoyed, a you know, a healthy series of exhibitions during his lifetime. I mean, you can't say that he wasn't being seen. I mean, he was there were a number of exhibitions and certainly Emmerich did, you know, a number of exhibitions over several years. So McLaughlin's work was deeply influenced by Japanese and Chinese art, probably more so than any artist of any American artist of the 20th century. Well, I, mean, I think you could look at Toby. I mean, I, I, I think that's a pretty big statement, and I'm not sure I would agree with that. But I could I would certainly say that he was 
primarily influenced by Asian art. So how did he come to discover it, and, and, and what did it mean to him? Well, we have to remember that McLaughlin was a self-taught artist, and he didn't take up actually making art in a serious way until he was 48. So he grew up outside of Boston. He was taken by his mother off into the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. She, through family, had inherited and was partial to Asian art. So that's where... That's what he became most familiar with. He never went to college. He enlisted in the enlisted in the Navy and spent you know for the First World War and comes back and to Boston and marries actually the grandniece of Ralph Waldo Emerson. They begin to sell Japanese to collect and to sell Japanese prints. And in the 1930s, the mid-30s, they take off to Asia and they visit both Tokyo and Peking, or now Beijing. So they stay for quite a bit of time and begin to collect prints, other examples of Asian art, and then come back to Boston. And he actually opens a gallery. So he you know, was actually dealing in in works of Japanese art. When the Second World War breaks out, I mean, he's kind of unusual. He was born in the 19th century, and he actually served in both world wars. So in the early 40s, he joins the reserves of the Marine Corps as a Japanese translator. They send him to Honolulu to, you know, further his Japanese studies. So he's actually in Pearl Harbor during the attack. He goes back to Boston and eventually is deployed first to Manzanar, where he, you know, has, you know, various kind of office jobs. Manzanar being one of the Japanese American concentration camps set up by the federal government. Exactly, in Cal in California. And then he goes for further Japanese language studies. And then basically they ship him to Southeast Asia, where he works basically in intelligence in India, Burma, and China. So he comes back, and he and his wife decide to settle in Southern California, and they move to, not to Los Angeles, but to the beach town in, in Orange County, Laguna Point, Dana, Dana, Laguna Beach, Dana Point. And he then decides to really full-time devote his time to being to being an artist. But he's still kind of, I would hear from artists in Los Angeles, oh yeah, John McLaughlin, he actually you know, was always selling Japanese prints. So I think he continued to do that while he was, while he was painting. So there's this, you know, long interest. This is the, the, this is the art that he was most intimately and personally familiar with. You have to think back to the 40s in Southern California. It's not like there were a plethora of museums where he could see original works of the European avant-garde, early 20th century examples that, that just didn't exist. So anything that he would know about early 20th century European abstraction would come from magazines or from books. So his real deep connection 
was to particularly Japanese art. You know, one of the things about his work that's always interested me is he comes to Asian and particularly Japanese art through prints, and yet he paints on masonite, which is about the least forgiving thing you can almost come up with. Why, why do you think he picked a masonite? Well, remember, he was self-taught. He painted on masonite. He bought his canvases at Sears. He used, you know, ordinary, sometimes house paint. I think it came from just expediency. And, you know, in, in a way, the downside of that is a lot of the paintings ended up being in not great condition. They lived a couple of blocks from the beach, hardly ideal circumstances for storing works of art in a garage. And particularly if, you know, you're working on a support like Masonite or you're working on, you know, fairly inexpensive canvases, it's not a great recipe for great archival quality of what you're preparing. Your essay points out that while there is an occasional visual similarity in McLaughlin's work to the work of, say, Reinhardt Newman or, or Ellsworth Kelly, that there are pretty significant differences between what they were up to and to what he was up to. What do you think are a couple of the most important ones? Well, I think, I mean, let's take, for instance, Ellsworth Kelly. We know from the evolution of Kelly's practice that many of his abstractions started in observations in the city, in, in the landscape, and he unbelievably elegantly and successfully would reduce something that might catch his eye, an awning or a barn door or a leaf, and, and is a, was able to reduce it to its essence of an abstraction. If you really tried to, to trace it backwards, it might have some grounding in something in the real world. And for McLaughlin, there is no grounding. I mean, in the exhibition, we the first room of the exhibition begins with abstract paintings that have no grounding and no basis in anything in the observable world. So as early as 1951, he is making fully, totally abstract works that don't come from anything. And that's a real difference, I think, in his practice. Critic Alfred Frankenstein found McLaughlin's work to be, in, in his word, classical, which is an interesting word that we don't hear used a lot in conjunction with 20th century American art. Maybe maybe Donald Judd, sure, but after that, not, not a lot of people. Do you find it classical? Well, I think that term may be attached because of his of his inclusion in the 1959 exhibition for Abstract Classicists, which was at LACMA, it was in San Francisco, Los Angeles, London, and and I think in Belfast. It was a it was a term that was used for these four artists: John McLaughlin, Carl Benjamin, Fred Hammersley, and Lorsa Feidelson. Their works are quite different, but they are all resolutely abstract artists, and it was. I think a term that was applied to them in in the 50s. To me, it, it it's I don't know. It's it's not a word that I would particularly use today 
in 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 describing in describing the work. I mean, I don't think it necessarily moves along our understanding of the work. There's maybe one painting in the catalog um, I was looking at and was tempted to kind of read a a you know maybe the golden mean into a 1954 abstraction, you know, wondering if its proportions measured up. But otherwise, I had I had trouble with the word. <laughs> well, one of the one of the very interesting and kind of uncanny things I think about McLaughlin is exactly that challenging of traditional proportions. And he has a, a way, if we look at a, a painting called Untitled, April of 1953, it's a it's a pretty radical composition in that he manages to divide, if you want to say the left and the right side of the composition, not in the center. And it's he does it with real confidence. And I think for me, that's one of the most kind of really interesting and kind of progressive paintings from the very early fifties. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. It's one of the paintings that it's hard to imagine Robert Irwin having having happened without, if you will. Virtually all of the authors in the catalog focus on, on composition. And none of you spend a ton of time on McLaughlin's colors, his palette, the way he uses color, the relationships between his colors, which for me is one of the really special, unique things about about the paintings. Is there anything about either particular colors he uses or the way he uses one color with another? I, I think the question of color is a really good is a really good one. And I and I have to say I think it's best discussed in the context of our having gathered over 50 works together where you can see them all at once. And the reason I say that is most people writing about McLaughlin may know a few works and have reproductions of the rest of them. When we brought all the works together, and I'd seen you know virtually all of them individually, and in my mind, it's like, oh yes, those pale blues, they're pretty similar. And when we actually went to hang the works when they were all in the same, you know, area together, it's astonishing the variations of what your mind remembers as one blue, in fact, is very different from an adjacent. So I think it's hard for people to write about color without seeing a whole group of these paintings because often reproductions are not accurate. So I think that one of the surprises in the exhibition is the remarkable range of colors. I mean, I think for many people, they think about McLaughlin, particularly in black and white. And the show is chock full of paintings with color. The other thing about color that, again, you can't tell at all from a reproduction is what happens at the edges of the canvas. So, and this was also a surprise when we began to unpack many of these paintings. So for instance, the painting Untitled Number 16 of 1962, when we saw that painting, it was had a double frame. So we could look at the painting, but we couldn't see the edges. 
we asked permission after it arrived if we could remove the frames and we received it. Well, to our astonishment, the red on the left and the blue on the right wrap around the edges. And it's a profoundly different experience that you cannot capture in a reproduction to see how the painting just kind of pulsates on the wall because it's not just on the flat picture plane, but it becomes three-dimensional as it wraps. He doesn't do it consistently, but he does do it in a number of works. He does it in several of the black and white works, um, you know, kind of in the last room, and they too are rather dynamic in the difference when the paint when the paint actually wraps around the edges. You mentioned McLaughlin's Boston roots and his wife's relationship to Ralph Waldo Emerson makes McLaughlin the second major California artist to have real ties to Emerson. You also mention in the catalog McLaughlin's relationship with transcendentalism and his presumed interest in it. I think people over many years have heard the word transcendentalism a lot without maybe really thinking about what it means. It's, it's become such a common term. It's uh, appealing a way of canon, religious canon in particular, at least in the 19th century, to emphasize personal experience and examination. Is there any textual evidence that McLaughlin was, was interested in such? I mean, I think the, the evidence that he wanted people to have a personal relationship with the painting that in essence the time that that one invests in looking at the painting to have that that one-on-one experience was extremely important to him you know that 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 sense that there's a great quote on page 57 of the catalog in michael duncan's essay he quotes a writing of mclaughlin's that's um, in the archives of american art that i think gets at that a little bit yeah, I mean, I, and we actually use some of the quotes, you know, actually in, in the exhibition as well. And and one of the reasons that, you know, it's it's hard to today, frankly, to get visitors to slow down in an exhibition. And this is a show that I think requires slowing down. So we made a decision in the installation of the exhibition to encourage close looking and commissioned artist Roy McMakin to make a series of his slat back chairs, which are very much a response, I think, to McLaughlin's aesthetic. And we positioned them throughout the exhibition kind of in front of different pictures and visitors can move them around. But when you walk into a gallery, there's that suggestion, stay, sit, look, have that personal, that one-on-one experience. And it's fascinating to me to go into the galleries each morning and see where the chairs ended up the previous day so that people are actually doing this. Stephanie Barron, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks for asking me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.